It's so good to be back. I uh, just really missed you the last two weeks. As most of you know, we spent two weeks in Germany. We went over to uh, spend some time with Campus Crusade for Christ staff in Germany. And uh, as it turned out, the staff from Austria and Switzerland also came down, and there were about 90 staff members for their annual conference, and uh, I had a chance to minister to them for a week. And it was just a, just a great time. I don't think any of us really appreciate the, uh, the kind of pressures that those people experience in that situation, the uh, opposition. And I, for one, came back with, a, with an even deeper appreciation for the pedicorps and the impact that, that uh, those folks are having on Germany. Uh, Dave and Mo Pavlik. I uh, also had some time to spend with them and uh, again came away with a with an even deeper appreciation for them and what the Lord is doing with them and Hanau working with servicemen. I have a, uh, a letter or a poem that Dave and Mo wrote that they asked me to share with you when I came back. It goes like this. "'Twas the week before Christmas at the hospitality house. Every creature was stirring to the call of Rouse, Rouse. <laughs> The stockings were hung and hung and hung and hung, 100 in all, but soon we discovered they left stains on the wall. <laughs> Apparently they hung a stocking for all the, the uh, servicemen that they're working with. Sterling and Kristen were jumping in bed while Dad, in frustration, was losing his head. <laughs> with Mo in the kitchen and Dave in his study, we were beginning to think this Christmas is cruddy. <laughs> With teaching and counseling and working a lot, it's no wonder by Christmas we're both really shot. But what to our wondering eyes should appear our pastor from Boise and his little dear? <laughs> so this is the work God has called you to do. For a moment I thought we had just found the zoo. <laughs> Meet Benny and Andy and David and Rip, each as a leader in discipleship. Don in the garden, Dan in the bookstore, Henry drives bus, what more could you ask for? Well, there's Caroline and Mary and Wanda and Pat with Kathy and Connie. How about that? We've been all over Germany and seen lots of stuff. This missionary life really is tough. Yet the Iranian crisis and a drop in the dollar has made us all jumpy, though we don't want to holler. For we have been called to rejoice in our Lord, to love one another with his love outpoured. So this holiday season, while we're far apart, Jesus has kept you near to our heart. Merry Christmas to all the Pavlics. And uh, they're just doing an outstanding job there. They've got, again, a lot of pressure and not much encouragement. There are two other chaplains on the post that are, that are believers, but uh, other than that, they're pretty much alone. And we spent uh, one evening with about 50 servicemen, officers, and enlisted men uh, teaching them and getting to know them, and I began to see the the really deep and profound effect that the Pavliks are having on uh, servicemen there in Hanau. And not only that, they have a ministry to chaplains. And uh, again, going back to Clark and Ann and their ministry, they're beginning to have a real effect on German pastors, on the state church pastors, on students at Heidelberg, the uh, theological university, the theological school there that will be going into the state churches. And it looks like we'll be able to invite uh, German pastors here to spend time with us for several weeks uh, so we as a church family can minister to them and also these fine young students, many of whom are uh, they're not exposed to any kind of evangelical teaching. 
They're being taught by liberal German scholars, and they're going into the state church, and they don't know how to teach people the word. They don't know how to disciple people. So it looks like we'll be able to bring these students over during the summertime and spend the summer working with them and helping them, teaching them the scriptures, and and then send them back to Germany where they'll be going into these state churches. Uh, the Germany is... Uh, uh, there are churches all over Germany, great uh, cathedrals, as you know, that are built to house uh, a thousand people, and there'll be thirty or forty elderly women, no students, uh, hardly any men. The state church is making very little impact, whatever, on the country. But uh, we have an opportunity as as a church here in Boise to make an investment in Germany, and frankly, I'm really excited about that. I'm going to take an evening in a couple of weeks and tell you more about what the Pedicorbs and the Pavliks are doing, but I thought you'd want just that, uh, that brief update, and I didn't want to read this uh, Christmas greeting from Dave. Now let's turn to the second chapter of Matthew, and we want to con- continue our studies in this, in this gospel, which uh, Steve began a couple of weeks ago. One of the questions that we have to ask ourselves anytime we approach one of these first four books in the New Testament is, what is the purpose of a gospel? What's it there for? These uh, books, as we know, were actually written much later than the epistles. The epistles came first. Our New Testament is not arranged chronologically. Uh, first James and then uh, the apostles began to write, and these letters were circulated with, uh, throughout the church. And then the gospels were written much later. And uh, the question is, why? What's the purpose of them? Well, they're apparently not uh, simply a history of Jesus' uh, life and teachings. They're not even a biography of Jesus. Because if we were going to write a biography of of the Lord, we certainly would take a different approach. Uh, Much of Jesus' life from age uh, 12 to age 30 is omitted. And certainly if we were going to write a biography of someone's life, we would say something about those formative years. But all of that is passed over in silence. So we wonder what these, what these books are for. Why were they first written? Well, they were written because the apostles were elderly, and they were passing from the scene. And there was the need to authenticate the basis of apostolic witness. In other words, the Gospels were written to establish the uniqueness of Jesus, to form the basis of the uniqueness of apostolic preaching. The apostles would preach, and they'd say, Well, where, where did you get this message? What's so important about Jesus? And uh, so these Gospels were written for this reason. While we were with the Pavliks, they took us down to um, the center of, of Hanau, where there's a large uh, marketplace, and uh, a number of groups were um, uh, holding forth there. The communists had their corner, and they were passing out literature and speaking. And, and Dave and Mo and their group of uh, servicemen went to one corner of the Mark Plots, and they began to play their guitars and sing Christmas music. They had taken a, quite a bit of time to learn Christmas carols in German. And uh, so these American servicemen stood on the corner and they sang German Christmas carols. And it was interesting to see the, the response on the part of, of uh, the people who gathered around the listeners. Quite a large crowd and several uh, elderly women standing there with tears streaming down their cheeks while they heard these, these young men and women singing. But uh, a man came up and he seemed to be a little bit uh, belligerent. And I couldn't understand what he was saying, but later someone explained that he had asked what these, uh, these men and women were doing on the, uh, on the, the, uh, mar- in the marketplace. Why were they singing? And uh, from this came a conversation, and eventually one of the servicemen told this 
uh, German gentleman to read the Gospel of John. And he said, if you read the Gospel of John, then you'll know why we're singing about Jesus. Well, that's an appropriate use of the Gospels. That's what they're for. They're there to show us the uniqueness of Jesus and why we love him and why we serve him, why he's important to us. Now, unfortunately, they're largely ignored. Most of us may have read Mark recently, but or maybe some portions of John, but they're seldom taught from or read because we love the epistles. And that's where we spend most of our time. But that's unfortunate. Because if we want to see something of the uniqueness of the Lord and what he means to us and why, why, we're, why we love him, why he's special to us, then you need to, to go to the Gospels to learn these truths. And that's what we're going to learn as we look at the, at the Gospel of, Mark, of Matthew together. Now let's begin with chapter 2. This, um, this chapter breaks down into four uh, easily identified paragraphs. The, my New American Standard Translation um, has the first paragraph as verses 1 through 12. And here we have described the visit of the Magi. And then in verses 13 through 15, the flight of Jesus' family to Egypt. And then 16 through 18, the slaughter of the innocents by Herod. And then finally, verses 19 through 23, uh, Jesus returned to Nazareth. Now let's begin with verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east appeared in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child, and when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went their way. And lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him, and opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. Now that's a very familiar uh, story. All of us know it well. It's the account of the visit, a visit of the Magi who came from the east. These Magi, as I'm sure you know, were not Jews. They were Gentiles. They probably came from Persia and uh, were not proselytes uh, of Judaism. They may have been Zoroastrian or from some other religion. But perhaps through contact with the book of Daniel or through some of the other prophets, they knew of the coming of the king of Israel. And when his star appeared, that was, uh, that was the sign that led them to Jerusalem. Now, the thing to note about this passage is that the star did not lead them to the right king or the right place. The star led them to the wrong king, 
to Herod into the wrong place to Jerusalem. I enjoy telling people that are all caught up in astrology that that's uh, where the stars will lead you. The stars will never lead you to Jesus. They'll always take you to the wrong king in the wrong place. In order to find Jesus, you have to go through the scriptures. It was this prophecy in the book of Micah that led the Magi to Jesus, not the stars. They came to Jerusalem and they inquired of Jesus, and it must have uh, created quite a, a furor. They wondered where the king of Israel was, and of course Herod at the time was the appointed king. And uh, Herod, understandably, was disturbed. And uh, he didn't know, apparently, where the king was to be born. But the priests knew, and as they brought out the scriptures and read the, the prophecy in Micah, it was that prediction of Jesus coming in Bethlehem that led the Magi on to Bethlehem. It is true that the star preceded them, but they would never have found the king if it had not been for this prediction. Because 800 years before, Micah had predicted that the coming king, the one for whom the whole earth longed, would be born in this little city of Bethlehem. You would expect the king of the Jews to be born in Jerusalem or in Rome or one of the other great capitals of the world, but uh, he wasn't. He was born in a little hick town, Bethlehem. It was so small it wasn't even counted among the towns of, uh, of Judah when they uh, conducted their census. It was such a tiny little outpost they didn't even mention it on the census accounts. It apparently was a military uh, outpost. And it was to this obscure town that Jesus came. It's interesting that Herod had built a uh, a large uh, palace complex on top of a nearby hill. If you visit Bethlehem today and you look off toward the, the northeast, you'll see a flat-topped hill just a mile or two out of town. And on top of that hill, Herod had built this enormous palace, which he called Herodium. It was a summer palace because the, uh, it was cooler there in the summertime, and, and he would go down to that, that particular location to live. But uh, Jesus bypassed the palace. He wasn't born in Herod's castle. He was born in a barn in a cold, drafty stable. So like the Lord. But you see, it was no accident. It was planned. 800 years before, the prophet revealed that it was in that location that Jesus would be born. And the strong note that you see all the way through Matthew is this idea that everything about Jesus' life was planned. Nothing was out of control. God was in control of every event of his life even the place in which Messiah would be born. And it was that prophecy then that led the Magi on to, uh, to the Lord. And then in verses 13 through 15, you have a description of their flight to Egypt. I'm sure most of you heard the story of the little boy uh, who was asked to draw a picture of some Bible story, and he drew a picture of an airplane with a uh, fellow up in the front that was flying the airplane, and in the back was... Uh, was Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And the teacher said, what's that? And uh, he said, well, that's the flight to Egypt. And she said, well, who's up in front? And he said, that's Pontius the pilot. <laughs> <laughs> and having traveled half around, around the world on an airplane, I uh, can say that, that sitting on airplanes is uh, tiring. But uh, it was far more tiring for the Lord Jesus and, the, and his family to travel to Egypt because he was he was literally snatched out of his crib in the dark of night 
and with his family, they had to flee for their lives to Egypt. And the story is told in verses 13 through 15. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son. And you see, again, the thing that strikes us about this passage is that it was all planned. The father knew that the son would be in Egypt. And long before the event, he predicted that he would be called out of Egypt. And the prediction here is from the prophet Hosea. In this case, another of those prophets we call the minor prophets. And Hosea's primary concern here was with the Exodus. But, but Matthew interprets this passage in a secondary way to refer to Jesus and point out that long before the event, long before what seemed to be a terrible tragedy to Jesus' family, the Father knew, and he had prepared a place for them there. As a result of the exile, a large number of Jews had fled to Egypt, and there was a, a large community of Jews there. They're called the Elephantini community, and they were already settled, and it was probably to that location that, that Jesus came. So there was a place prepared for him hundreds of years before he left. And it struck me this time for the first time that the gifts of the Magi played a part in this flight. How else could they have financed this flight? And how could they have supported themselves so far from home? You see, the Father knew. And long in advance of this uh, escape under cover of darkness, the Lord had prepared a place for them in Egypt and had provided the finances that were necessary so they could, could take care of themselves and take care of, of the baby Jesus as he began to grow. And then in verses 16 through 18, we have this, this uh, terrible story of the slaughter of the innocent children in Bethlehem, Herod was so enraged when he discovered that Jesus had slipped through his grasp that he went after the innocent children in Bethlehem. Uh, the, this uh, slaughter was perhaps not, uh, not, not great, not large. Uh, Bethlehem was so small it may have involved only a half dozen or so children, but, but still, what a terrible loss for these, these mothers, these families. And I'm sure it must have come to, to Jesus' mind many times during his life that he, that, that he was responsible in some way for the death of these children because Herod was trying to kill him, you see. And we would expect this of Herod. He was notoriously wicked. He killed his own wife and mother and, and this was a pattern of life with him so it was no big thing for Herod to take a life. But it was a terrible thing for those who were directly involved. You know, read that, that when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its environs from two years old and under according to the time which he, which he had ascertained from the Magi. It apparently took uh, several months, maybe as much as a year, for the Magi to reach Jerusalem. And, and so Herod, uh, in order not to, to permit Jesus to escape, killed all the children from two years and under. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Now here, Matthew quotes from Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, as you can tell by your side note. And uh, although Jeremiah's primary reference here is to the exile and uh, the, uh, the terrible judgment that was poured out on Judah 
through the Babylonian captivity and the destruction of the children in Ramah. Here Matthew applies it again in a secondary sense to these, these mothers, the mothers of the children in Bethlehem who were slaughtered by, by Herod. But see, even again, the father is in control. Certainly he's in no way implicated in this terrible deed. He's not responsible for it in any way. But uh, all these things that we call accidents, tragedies, are again screened through the Father's love. They're all a part of his plan. Everything's under control. We look around us at the world and we think the whole world is running amok. And uh, our lives are in total disarray. And there's confusion and chaos. But if we understand God's word, we understand that God is in control of every affair, every event, even one so terrible as this one described in these verses. And then in verses 19 through 23, we have recorded for us the account of their return to Nazareth. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Herod died about 4 B.C. Our calendars are off at least, at least four years. And uh, probably within the first year of Jesus' life, Herod uh, died. And uh, Archelaus succeeded him to the throne. And so now, with Herod dead, they were free to leave uh, Egypt. And the angel told Joseph, Arise and take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the regions of Galilee and came and resided in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. And uh, here again, in advance of, this, of this, uh, uh, this journey up to Nazareth, the father had made arrangements because the, the ruler of the Jews in Galilee was Herod Antipas, who was a much more benevolent, uh, benevolent ruler. He was a merciful man. And uh, the father had prepared even the, even the political events, the political affairs of their life had been prepared beforehand because the prophets had predicted that Jesus would come from Nazareth. Now, this is a difficult prophecy because there is no specific prediction in the Old Testament that establishes Jesus' residence in, in Nazareth. But uh, because he says the prophets here, plural, and not some specific prophet, I think the point of the prophecy is not the particular place that Jesus would live, but that he would live in some small, obscure town in Galilee. And, and there are many Old Testament prophecies that suggest that Jesus would grow up in obscurity in some place where he was not well known and recognized. And he would be a notzer, that is, a, a branch, as Isaiah describes him as a as a a green shoot that comes up out of a dry ground in the most unexpected sort of place. Remember when, when the uh, Pharisees were told that Jesus came from Nazareth, they said, look and see, no great thing, no great man comes out of Galilee. But they hadn't read their Bibles well because the prophets had predicted that Jesus would grow up in some obscure village in Galilee. And here again, well in advance of this instance, God has provided. He raised up a king, a benevolent king, 
and uh, he placed Jesus in a, in a location where he could grow to maturity and uh, escape the vengeance of the kings in, in the south. So God is planning, you see. He's been at work all along to prepare a place for his son and to protect him and to provide for him. Underneath are the everlasting arms. Underneath all of these, uh, what appear to be uh, just things that happen to Jesus, there's the love and the care of a heavenly father who's working everything out according to his plan. And that's something for us to remember at this time. Because the same thing is true of us. As Paul puts it, God is at work both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Yeah, excuse me. Okay. Yes. Now, for us at this Christmas time, um, Christmas is always associated with, with joy and with children's laughter, and tinsel, and trees, and, and beautiful music, and opening gifts, and uh, families getting together. When we were on the plane last night, there was a, just an unusual spirit of, of joy all around us as people were going back home for the holidays and talking about their parents and seeing their children. And uh, there was an air of excitement because Christmas is a time when we experience real joy. But uh, for many of us, underneath the joy, there's real anxiety. Anxiety about our families and our finances, our businesses, our marriages, our children. And uh, though there's a surface calm and, and peace, for many of us underneath, things are, are not peaceful. And uh, when we look at Jesus' life, we see that... Uh, that Christmas for him was not particularly a time of joy either. Uh, there were moments when the shepherds gave him their adulation and when the Magi worshipped him. But by and large, the early days of Jesus' life were filled with discomfort and distress, pressure. And yet, what I see through this account is that God was working to accomplish his will. He had a plan long before Jesus came. He knew what would happen. He knew what he would do for his son, and he did it. And that's what gives us comfort as well. One mark of maturity, I think, is understanding that despite what appears to be true around us, underneath are the everlasting arms. God is at work both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Let me tell you a story. A very interesting thing happened to Carolyn and me on the flight uh, back from London last night. Uh, we were riding in one of these wide-bodied 747s. You know, they have three seats over here and four in the center and three over on the other side. And uh, because of my gimpy leg, I wanted an aisle seat where I could stick my foot out in the aisle. And uh, so we went fairly early to the airport, and I just arbitrarily picked out a seat so I could stick my leg out in the aisle. And uh, we got in the plane, and we sat down, and a few minutes later, a young couple sat down next to us. And uh, after they'd been there about 10 or 15 minutes, there was a little disturbance, and I looked over, and I noticed that something was wrong. And there was a man standing in the aisle arguing with the man that was, that was seated. And what had happened is that this, this couple had been split up in the seating arrangement, and the, the girl was sitting right next to Carolyn, 
But the young man was seated at the back of the airplane. But he had just seated himself in that seat in the hopes that he could hold it when someone else came in. But as it turned out, someone else had a reservation for that seat. And it was a family that was somewhat split up, and they had a mother who was sitting on the aisle, and the little boy was supposed to sit on the other side. But uh, when they tried to, to uh, convince this couple that that was their seat, an argument broke out, and eventually a stewardess came over and worked the whole thing out. And, and the couple were upset, visibly upset about the whole thing, but the young man went to the back of the plane to sit down, and the young lady stayed there, and the little boy was sitting next to the aisle. So we didn't think anything more about it. And the plane took off, and after about an hour, the man whose girl was sitting next to Carolyn came over and said, I found someone that will exchange seats with you. So you come sit back here with me, and this other man will come sit uh, down here. So the man sat down, and it was obvious he wasn't really very happy about the whole thing, but uh, he was willing to exchange seats, and he, he also had a pad of paper, and he was busy at work, but this little boy wanted to talk. So he began talking to him, and, and uh, in about 15 minutes, we learned this man's, the story of this man's life. He was a very wealthy, successful businessman from Saratoga, California. He's involved in international business interests. He flies regularly back and forth across the Atlantic. He has a yacht in Santa Cruz, California, and a big house in Saratoga, and he's just very obviously a very successful man, and probably in his mid middle 40s. And uh, after a period of time, we struck up a conversation with him, Carolyn first, just asking him some questions about his children, and then we started talking about his business. And uh, after we talked to him for about 15 or 20 minutes, we began to talk to him about his relationship to the Lord and share the gospel with him. And as we talked, his whole demeanor changed. He uh, became very reflective, and uh, his eyes filled up with tears, and uh, he was very attentive. He asked a few questions, had no, no real obstacles. And after a while, he said, you know, this is really incredible. He said, I have a friend, the only friend I've ever met like this, that believes just like you do. And he began to tell us what she had told him. And uh, almost uh, in passing, he said, and her name is Nell King. And Carolyn gasped, and she said, that's one of my best friends. Nell King is a lady who now lives in San Diego, California, but we had met her when she uh, lived in the, in the San Francisco area where we live, and she became one of Carolyn's dearest friends. She was a real servant to Carolyn at a time of need. And what had happened is that when this lady was in Italy, she had shared the gospel with this man's wife, and she had become a Christian. And when she got back to the Saratoga area, she had gotten into Bible study fellowship. And this man was so impressed with the change that had taken place in her life that he'd begun to think about his own relationship to the Lord. He's not a Christian. And I started putting all these things together, that a woman in San Diego is praying for a man who happened to be flying from London to Seattle and the Ropers just arbitrarily picked a seat right next to him, except he wasn't there at that time. He was in the back of the bus. So the Lord had to get him from the back seat right next to us. And you know what he said? It was really interesting. We gave him a copy of the Four Laws, and he said he'd read it. He didn't receive the Lord, but he's right on the verge. He said a very interesting thing. He said, this is not a coincidence. This is a part of God's plan. And his eyes just filled up with tears. And I thought, that's right. 
That's exactly what we learn from this passage. We just trip through life, you know, making plans, doing all sorts of things. God says, well, then we'll move you around here, and we'll do this, and we'll bring this person into, into your life. It's all part of the plan. It's all prepared. Because underneath are the everlasting arms. And I know that many of you at this Christmas season are struggling with a lot of things. Your children and your marriages and your uh, financial condition. And, and many of us have things that are really burdening us. But underneath are the everlasting arms. And he who has begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let's stand together, shall we, and we'll pray. Father, what a comfort it is to us to know that, that you have us in hand. Even the decisions that we make that seem to be, uh, seem to be causing us so, so much trouble now, these things that we felt we freely chose to do are all a part of the design that you're working out in our life and that you're not going to let us go. And what a comfort it is to get up in the morning and say, thank you, Lord, this is your day. I'm going to walk in it. And whatever happens today is a part of your plan. And we can look back and thank God for what he's done. Teach us, Lord, to maintain your perspective on things. Teach us that we need to pursue your purposes and not our own. And thank you that you're at work to satisfy us and fulfill us in every way. Thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.